morning. This is Dr. Mark Shaw, and he is actually uh, one of the missionaries that our church supports, and we've been supporting you for, you said, since the early 90s? I think so. Since the early 90s. And uh, he is a professor in Kenya, uh, teaching at a theological school there. And tell us what school are you with? And um, uh, Nairobi Evangelical Graduate School of Theology. All right, so you're training pastors in Kenya to go out into the churches, and the the growth of the if if you're not aware, the growth of the church and of the gospel in sub-Saharan Africa has been explosive. It, it has been a, a mighty work of God. But with uh, the growth of the church, is a need for leadership, and so that's where uh, uh, Mark and his wife Lois come in. They've been training students there. And how long have you been in Kenya? Uh, Twenty years. Twenty years. Wow. So it, it's just been great to be a partner with them and um, having Seth, our associate pastor, who was a missionary in Kenya for 10 years. So there's sort of a, a connection there with our church that we, we appreciate having. So Mark is also on the preaching team at his congregation in Kenya where, where you worship. And so uh, just a pleasure to have him here opening God's word for us. So at uh, this time we'd like to invite the children here between the ages of kindergarten and second grade to be dismissed to children's church where they can find through the door over here by the piano. And uh, could the rest of us just give uh, Dr. Shaw a welcome this morning? That'd be great. So I do thank you for that warm welcome, and I greet you this morning in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we are grateful for the partnership we have with South Shore Baptist over these many years, and are grateful for the heart for mission that is here. I am also grateful for the chance to uh, share a little bit of Hebrews with you. I'm excited that you're going through this, this great book, uh, perhaps the only book in the Bible that fully develops what it means for Jesus to be our great high priest. And we look today at a passage that's, uh, that opens up a, a perhaps the longest section in Hebrews from the end of chapter 4 all the way to the end of chapter 10 to get into the heart of what it means to say Jesus is our great high priest. So uh, thank you for the privilege. It's also the first Sunday in Advent. And uh, I'm always happy to have an opportunity to vent a little bit about what I don't like about Christmas. Um, if I do it early enough in the season, like the first Sunday in Advent, then uh, my negative attitude sort of wears, uh, you'll forget about it by the time Christmas rolls around. So uh, let me begin by a little venting. Uh, first of all, it bugs me about Christmas that it's full of so many contradictions. And you know what I mean. You know, it's the season of peace, right? We, we celebrate the coming of the Prince of Peace. And yet, is there a crazier time of year? Uh, anything but, you know, peace, it seems. We're busy with a, a million things. Uh, that, that's one of the convictions. Um, it's a time of joy, and yet, you know, sociologists and social workers tell us that more people get depressed at Christmas than any other time of the year. Uh, how does that work? It's just a contradiction. It's a, a time of, of giving and generosity, and yet we sink deeper into debt you know, during, during Christmas. So there's a tangle of convictions uh, about this, uh, this season uh, as we celebrate you know, the greatest event, and yet uh, the contradictions that seem to go with that. And that's not my biggest gripe. My real pet peeve 
is that uh, Christmas just doesn't last. Uh, I'm not not saying I'd like to keep the tree up year-round. I'm just saying for a big day, it doesn't always seem to have lasting results. So what do I mean? Well, um, let's say it's it's, uh, your wedding day. Uh, who, who, on their wedding day, you know, after all the expense and, and the hoopla and the gifts and everything, turns to their bride and says, "Well, you know, that was just great. See you next year. You know, it's uh, <laughs> there's going to be some lasting results. You know, hopefully something permanent has happened as a result of of, Chris, uh, of uh, the wedding. Or uh, who, who has a baby in the hospital? Delivery day, the day you've been waiting for. You know, the doctor said it would be the 15th. There it is, the 15th, and." rush to the delivery room and baby comes and you know what mother's going to say to the nurse well that was really quite an ordeal I'll see you next year you know I'll come by and see how the baby's doing and it's one of those days that creates a permanent change but when you come to Christmas there's all this build up and, and then the explosion of you know the 25th and then what you know uh, where is the lasting result it seems to be very fleeting in its impact and uh that bugs me. But it's also a pet peeve that is addressed by the text that's before us today in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Let me read that text for you, and then let's hear what the Word of God has to tell us about, about Christmas, about uh, an approach to Christmas that uh, will yield some lasting results. Hebrews chapter 4 reading from 14 to the end of the chapter. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need, the Word of God. Uh, in these verses, here's what the writer of Hebrews tells us and how we might apply it to Christmas. That Christmas is really a call. If we see Christmas as a, a calling of God to us, a call to trade in our little systems of control. We'll talk about that in a moment. Our little systems of control for the lasting shalom of the Savior. Uh, That's what God wants us to hear this morning. That Christmas is a call that comes at a critical time at the end of every year where God calls us through this event to trade in our little systems of control for the lasting shalom of the Savior. And in these three verses, he tells us three things about why we should trade in our little systems of control for the shalom of the Savior. He, he says that it's a sovereign Savior who can deliver shalom. It's a sympathetic Savior who wants to deliver shalom to you and I. He cares about you and I. And then finally, He's a satisfying Savior who, who meets real needs and changes real lives. First of all, there's a call in this passage, a Christmas call, I believe, to trade in our little systems of control for the shalom of a sovereign Savior. 
Take a look at verse 14 that we just read. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. A great high priest. Not just a high priest. A great high priest. And what makes him so great? Well, note three things that are said in that verse about Jesus as a great high priest. First of all, he was divine. Jesus, Son of God. No other high priest in any religion, let alone Judaism, can make that claim. He was truly human. He truly represents us because he's Jesus. represents his humanity. And he is a victorious priest. He traveled, has gone through the heavens, top to bottom, that through his achievement, both in his incarnation at Christmas and his faithful and obedient life on earth and his suffering and death, for our sins and his glorious resurrection and his triumphant ascension and his rule now at the right hand of God, nobody in the universe is like Jesus. He's just one of a kind. And he is our high priest, we're told. This victorious one, this almighty one, this truly human one is our priest, a sovereign high priest. Great news. Or is it? It's a tough sell, I think, in our culture to talk about uh, you know, Jesus as a high priest. Not that we have any particular objection to it. It's just that it doesn't mean a lot to us. Uh, you know, imagine uh, watching CNN and uh, Wolf Blitzer and, and uh, Anderson Cooper. They're talking and they're saying, you know, the president-elect, he's putting together this a great cabinet. That's pretty good. And, oh, there's a great economic bailout program coming and... Uh, uh, we've got uh, some great experts coming on as a, as a council. Uh, but the really good news is that they found a great high priest and uh, somehow he's going to fix everything. I, I haven't heard that on CNN. I, you know, maybe I tune in at the wrong time. But it's not a category that we look to as someone who can solve problems. We look to experts. We look to little systems of control that we've gotten used to. We've, we've become maybe addicted to. Financial systems, they're good. But that's how you fix things. You fix our little systems of control. Political systems. Little systems that keep control. Keep the nation from heading off course. And we do it with family. Little systems of control that keep the ship from rocking too much. Keep the boat from rocking too much. These little systems of control are what we really believe in when things get tough. And... The good news that we've got a great high priest, it may not connect with the power and impact that it would have connected in the first century. Because these first century Christians, these Jewish Christians in Palestine, to whom the writer uh, addresses this letter or sermon, that is the book of Hebrews, uh, they would have known immediately not only what he's talking about, but that he, he's making the most important point that he could make. Because Jewish Christians... Two, two characteristics. One was a profound insight that we may be lacking today. The second was a, a really huge blind spot that we can learn from today. The profound insight is that no matter what happens in the economic world or the financial world or world of the family, school, jobs, relationships, you name it, whatever goes wrong, sins at the bottom. Sins at the bottom. But you say, well, I, you know, there you're trying to blame me for everything. No, I'm not saying just individual sin, but 
the fallen world, sinful human nature. We can't escape the fact that we need all these systems, these little systems of control, to try to rein in our fallenness. Can we really analyze what's been going on in the last year in our economic system without using words like greed, selfishness, Ambition. We can't. Arrogance. <laughs> Human nature is at the very heart of, of so much corruption in the system. We're fallen individuals. And, and so the only way that a sin problem can be handled, and Jewish Christians knew this well, is that sin required atonement. Sin had to be covered because a holy God can't just look at sin and say, ah, oh, well, you know, they're trying. No, a holy God's got to respond to sin in a holy way. And that's, that's punishment. And so the biggest need in a, in a Jewish Christian mind would have been, man, we need a priest. Which led to their profound blind spot. Because uh, they'd heard the message of Jesus that, that he was the great high priest. And they responded to this life in freedom and in grace through faith that is in Christ. But then problems began. Tim Keller, great Bible teacher, has said the book of Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians who had one question. If Christianity is so great, why is life so hard? If Christianity is so great, why is life so hard? I'm trying my best. I'm trying to follow the Savior and then I lose my job or I've lost my property. property. Uh, there was foreclosure going on in the book of Hebrews. You'll get to that towards the end of the book. It was job loss. It was financial loss. And their heads were spinning and they said, well, I thought Jesus was sort of a better system than the system, uh, the Jewish system that we left. But if he's, if he's so great, why, why is life so hard? And so they were tempted to go back to the old system. And here was their blind spot, that religion itself can become a little system of control. A little system to control God. Okay, God, I will do this for you and, and I'm expecting, you know, you do your part and I'll do my part. That's how religion works. We can take even the gospel itself, we can take even the Christian faith and we can even take church. We can turn it into a little system to try to control God. Just to keep the, the lid on, to keep things in order. And when random things happen, we... I get bent out of shape because uh, you know God's not keeping his end of the deal. And the blind spot was that they couldn't see that that's what they were doing with religion. And so the book of Hebrews is written to say, wait a minute, you already have what you need. You don't need to go back to a little system of religious control to try to make God behave, do what, he, what you want him to do. You have a Savior, a great Savior, who has gained you complete access to God. He's cleared out all the obstacles and barriers and enemies that have kept you from God. He's gone through from one end of the universe to the other. All the barriers are gone. All the opposition is gone. All the interference is gone. You've got a free access to God now and forever. That's all you need is a sovereign priest. A great high priest is exactly what is needed for lasting change. Not hacking at the branches of our problems with little systems of control. 
but finding a powerful Savior, one who can change people from the inside out, who can destroy sin at its root and its branches, who can make all things new. Stuart Briscoe tells the story of a, uh, when the word awesome was becoming part of our vernacular 15 years ago, 10 years ago, I don't know. Uh, talking to a 10-year-old who, who was just awesome this and awesome that, and you know, uh, I got an awesome bicycle, I got an awesome uh, shoes, you know, everything's awesome. And so he's a little perturbed by this, and so he said, right, well, t- define awesome for me. And uh, this was in the Chicago area, and the kid said, well, Michael Jordan, you know, that's awesome. Michael Jordan, why Michael Jordan? Because Michael Jordan can dunk the ball. That's awesome. Nobody can do it like him. He just, Air Jordan, he just, you know, heads up into the heavens and smashes that ball down to the, to the rim. That, that's, that's awesome. Briscoe meditated on this profound truth uh, for moments afterward and said, yeah, well, that's God. That's God. That's why God is awesome because Michael Jordan may dunk a basketball, but God dunks the world. He dunks the world. He's a great high priest who's turned the whole universe into his court. And he runs from one end to the other. You double team him, you can't stop him. He has a purpose to seek and to save the lost. To create a new people who are his missionary people in the world. And nobody's going to stop him. Not a bad economy. Not a transition in leadership. Not an uncertain 2009 He's awesome. He dunks the world. And no one can keep him from doing that. That's what we need. Christmas is a call to trade in little systems of control that try to obligate God and instead bask in the lasting shalom of a sovereign Savior. That's the first thing we're called to do in this passage. But it's not all. The second thing is that We need to see Christmas as a call to trade in our little systems of control for the shalom of a sympathetic Savior. Shalom of a sympathetic Savior. Take a look at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. but We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are yet was without sin. Why is this important? Why is it important to, to, to say that Jesus sympathizes? I don't always appreciate that when people say that. You know, oh, Mark, I really sympathize with you. Well, why? What's wrong? You know, what does that say? Don't need your pity. You, know? you can get a little defensive about that. But the word means just what it says: to to suffer with sympathos, to suffer with somebody, to so identify with another's sufferings that they are like yours. We're, just, we're told here that we have such a high priest. Not just one who can dunk the world, but one who can come close and know who we are and, and what we need. Why, why is this important? It's important because uh, it closes the argument. It closes the argument about why we can trust God. Because without this, you can't close the argument. Here's the problem. It's like, it's like the uh, car commercials. You know, they say, Lexus. Zero percent financing. Wow. Zero percent financing. So I go and apply and they say, 
Oh, Mr. Shaw, I'm sorry. It's only for qualified buyers. Oh. For you, it's 25%. Oh, thanks. Um, no matter how good a deal Jesus is, if, he doesn't, if we don't qualify for it, it's no good, right? If we're not qualified. So how do I know if I'm qualified? How, how do I know if Jesus really scrutinizes my life, turns me inside out? How do, how do I know that he's not going to find something that will disqualify me from his kingdom, from his grace, that will make me so unacceptable, so unclean that, that he says, oh, I'm sorry, the deal's not for you. And he moves on to someone more deserving. We're told that Jesus is a sympathetic high priest who knows who we are and accepts us as we are. How has he done this? Well, we know that he faced temptation in this earth. We know about the wilderness temptation against Satan. We know he was try, uh, uh, um, um, provoked and tempted by his enemies all through his earthly life. But there's more to his temptation than simply the wilderness experience or the opposition of the Jews. The place where Jesus really found out what it's like to be a fallen human being was the cross. Where he faced the greatest temptation that you or I will ever face. That's the temptation to despair. Life isn't going to work. You stare in the abyss. You know, our little systems of control stop working and we stare at oblivion. We stare at total failure. You know, the place where dreams get swallowed up like a black hole and where it seems like all the promises of God fail. Christ was there because it was there that he identified with that uh, deepest and most debilitating of all temptations to give up, to quit, to feel that all is lost. He felt it so strongly that he himself cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He felt and was tempted by despair. Yet without sin, because his final words on the cross were, Into your hands I commend my spirit. He made it through, but he felt it. He knows our lives of quiet desperation. He knows how close we are to staring into that abyss. He went there went to the edge with us, stared over into it with us and for us. And calls us then to trust Him even when we are tempted by not just the pride, lust, and unbelief temptations. Those are bad enough. But that foulest of all, the temptation to quit, to believe that death is the final victor. If you trust him, you qualify for the 0% financing. Uh, He's made you qualified. He understands where you're coming from. And he makes it possible for you to know him and his fullness and his richness now and forever. But there's a condition. It's a condition we have to give up our little systems of control, what we do to fight back, you know, keep back uh, the gloom and the shadows, and turn that in for a savior. A sovereign one, but also a sympathetic one. And finally, Christmas can be transformed if we hear it as a call to trade in our little systems of control for the shalom of a satisfying Savior. 
satisfying Savior. Look at verse uh, uh, 16, and then I'll take you back to 14b. Verse 16 says, Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And then at the end of verse 14, we had already read, Let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. Two commands that become, through Jesus Christ, invitations to us. Hold on and come closer. Hold on to the sovereign and sympathetic Savior and come closer to Him. How do you keep on your feet when your world is shaking? You hold on to Him and you come closer to Him. It's the alternative to little systems of control. Jesus cannot be shaken, but He is the one who shakes the world. If you were standing in front of the tomb on Sunday morning and you felt the tremors of the earth and you, you, you said, well, I'm going to hold on to something solid and you put your hands on that rock in front of the, the tomb, you would have made a mistake. That rock that, that symbolized Roman control that was put there and sealed by the, the Roman army. Try to hold on to that and it, and it just rolls away. It's not going to give you stability. Or if you said, oh my, the world is shaking and you ran into the temple and you, you went to the Holy of Holies and you held on to that curtain and said, finally, something solid. And then in your hands, it rips apart. Why is that? Who rolls away those stones that, that can become shaken? Who, who rips that curtain that separates an unholy world from a holy God? The cross of Jesus Christ. And so the only way we can hold on in a world that seems to be shaking around us is to hold on to the one who cannot be shaken, but who shakes all things. And how we finally get a clue then of, of why God shakes up our little systems of control. Why the things that used to work don't work anymore. So that we will hold on to Him. That's it. That's it. He shakes our world, not because He's forgotten about us, not because He doesn't care, not because He's busy doing other things. He does it so that it breaks our addiction to our little systems of control. And we take those hands that have now been freed and we just hold on. But we can do more than hold on. We can come closer. Because He's a satisfying Savior. He says, if you come to Me, I'll meet your needs. I'm full of mercy. I've got stuff I want to give you. So it's a call to, to come and to, to dump on Him, to tell it all to Him, to make Him our intimate high priest. It's a call to intimacy because He has all we need. He is the one who satisfies. He's the source of all satisfactions. And in a shaken world, He is the fixed point. On Tuesday night, uh, Lois and I went to a... Uh, a little dinner, a memorial dinner uh, at some friends' houses. We've known these people for 25 years, uh, Ruby and, and Donna. And three years ago, their seven-year-old daughter, Erica, died of a brain tumor after a long and debilitating illness. And this was the third anniversary, and we showed up with a few other friends to remember her. And uh, it's, it's been interesting to watch Donna and Roby over these years you know how it is when, when you lose a child? Toughest thing in the world. And not every marriage makes it. Not every marriage survives that. All the guilt you feel and 
and uh, the frustration and despair and sorrow. But uh, Tuesday night I saw a couple that was amazing. Heartbroken? Yeah. Still um, in the grips of this loss? Yeah, of course. But full of faith. Full of faith. They've used this as an opportunity to witness and share their faith with all kinds of people they, who heard about Erica's death but you know, just could only imagine the worst uh, when it came to the impact on the family. I've never seen Donna. I, I was her youth leader when she was 18. She's now older than I'm going to tell you, but I've never seen her so strong in her faith. Not, not pretending, not putting on, just she held on to someone and became intimate with someone who has given her lasting shalom. That's how it works. She had her little coping systems. They didn't work. She traded it in for a Savior who gives lasting shalom. And that's working. It's working. The marriage is going to make it. They're, they're doing great. Not because of them, but because of a Savior that they've turned to. That's how it works, folks. And if Christmas calls you to that new perspective, it will be a Christmas with lasting results. Will you hear that call from God today? Hear it again. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The promises of God. Let's pray. So our Father, you know what we need, you know the exchange.